the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, the great Andrew McCarthy from National Review. We're going to talk about Roe v. Wade. We're going to talk about January 6th. And we're going to talk about why the popular vote would never work in America. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. So much to talk about, so little time, but what a guest. Andrew McCarthy, who has given me permission to call him Andy, is a senior fellow at National Review Institute and National Review contributing editor, author of Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. There's so much to your background. We would spend the whole entire podcast, Andy, talking about that. So I'll I'll just leave it at that for now. Welcome. And I, I know that you have been paying close attention to the January 6th hearings. As of we sit here today, and as we're recording, that is 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 what is the date? July twenty seventh of two thousand twenty two. What is your biggest takeaway to this point of these hearings? Well, Michelle, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first and second, you know, I think people have to take the hearings for what they are. You know, what not are what they? they would. <laughs> Well, yeah, not what they'd aspire to be, right? So it's more like a, a sort of a slickly produced, made-for-TV docudrama that wouldn't have that wouldn't last ten seconds in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to keep bearing that in mind because the the imagery it's kind of like you know, like sixty minutes does, where they interview somebody for you know ten hours and then they play fifteen seconds of of, of a clip here or there, and you don't know yeah. how representative that is of what the whole interview was. It's kind of like that. They have a narrative, and they have a bunch of interviews they've done. They've interviewed hundreds of people, and they're splicing and dicing what they have, and we don't get to see the transcripts or the video of the interviews. So we don't know if they're representative or not. We'll just have to take Adam Schiff's word for it. Um, And we know how well that's worked out in the past. (laughs) So, you know, I I think what people should understand is where the, the important part of this game is being played is not visible to people, which is at the Justice Department. And whether the committee refers... Trump or anyone else to the Justice Department for prosecution or not, that referral is not going to be very meaningful to federal prosecutors who are going to make their own assessment of the evidence 
and who have access to a lot of evidence that the committee doesn't have access to. So a lot of this, I think, is I've always regarded the January 6th committee as the investigation that Congress failed to do in connection with the impeachment 18 months ago. They're kind of using criminal prosecution as a proxy because no one has a stomach to go the impeachment route again. But I think what the committee really is unanimous on is they would like to destroy Trump as a political force. Right. And I think that the interesting thing is they have different reasons for that. You know, we always talk about how united they are and they are united in in um, in their Trump obsession. But I think, you know, Liz Cheney, I think, is trying to show Republicans that Trump can't win a national election and shouldn't be the candidate. And right. I think Democrats are trying to goad Trump into running because they think they can beat him. So it's an interesting little dynamic, but they're all trying to show that he's unfit. And how successful do you think they have been in in showing that he is, quote unquote, unfit? Well, you know, for people who are watching the hearings, which is a very small subset of people in the country, I think I saw uh, something that said maybe 18 million people at most watched the last hearing out of a country of 330 million, about you know right. half of those voters. Right. Um, so, you know, they probably punch above their weight a little bit in terms of uh, how many people are influenced by them versus how many people actually watch. But I think most people who are watching have already made up their mind about right. Trump. Yeah. And I and, you know, I, I do think that, you know, to the extent it's a video television presentation, it's powerful. So, you know, if you if you're influenced by it at all, it may dawn on people that Trump can't win a national election. And that may I think that may be beginning to erode his support in the Republican Party, but it's very gradual uh, and I think the Justice Department deciding whether to charge or not to charge is probably a bigger deal. Any predictions on that front? What what do you think would make them charge him? So there's what I think should happen and what I think will happen. Or okay. What what I'm afraid will happen. Um, I think, you know, the, the um, short history of the Biden administration so far has been that the the Democratic base – gets its way, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, you know, in a different context, for example, I think Merrick Garland, who was a distinguished federal judge for over 20 years before he became attorney general and was, in fact, a, a, a candidate to be on the Supreme Court, right? He knew that it would be a terrible idea to instruct the FBI that they should go investigate America's parents for dissenting against woke progressivism in the schools, right? But he did it anyway. Uh, and he did it because that's what their base wants. And I think the problem that that Biden has sort of generally is he wanted to be another FDR and, uh, you know, personality makeup and all that stuff aside, he never had the congressional margins to be another right. FB, FDR. He was never going to get anything through Congress. So it's very frustrating to the left that they can't get climate through, they can't get, you know, a bunch of the stuff that they want through voting uh, reform and, and the whole agenda. But what can he give them? He doesn't need Congress to do anything the executive branch can do on its own. Okay. So I think the, the progressive base 
has a lot more influence in terms of what they can get Biden to do that he can't go to them and say, gee, I'd love to help you here, but you know, the Senate won't do it or the House, you know, I don't have the numbers. He can, they can prosecute someone at the Justice Department. No one can stop them. So the left badly wants this. And if I'm, if I'm, um, Merrick Garland, I'm sitting there saying, um, there's, there's two kinds of crimes that are potentially related to January 6th. One is violent crime, you know, the riot itself, which has been charged in a variety of ways, like uh, uh, assault on federal officers, uh, seditious conspiracy. I happen to be the last prosecutor in America who prosecuted a successful seditious conspiracy case back in the 1990s against terrorists. So I, I think seditious conspiracy is a bad fit here, but that does go in the bucket of violent crime. And then there's nonviolent crime that I think would be a terrible mistake to prosecute because what it basically is, is frivolous legal theories that they say at some point in time morphed into something that was a criminal fraud scheme. And I have to tell you, when I was a prosecutor, if, if, if frivolous legal theories are now a felony, I could have prosecuted 10 felonies a day. I mean, you know, um, frivolous legal theories are sort of the coin of the realm um, in, uh, in federal criminal practice. Uh, and I, I just think, you know, Bill Barr said something I think was really smart about um, the the intrusion of the Justice Department into our politics, which we've seen a lot of in the last eight years or so and has been a disaster across the board. Right. And that is that you don't want the Justice Department in politics and, and you don't want politics in the Justice Department. So you're, you should have a higher standard to prosecute anything that's going to have implications for the electoral system. And what Barr called this was meat and potatoes crimes. In other words, when, you know, when I was in the Southern District of New York, um, the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office for, for many years, we had brilliant lawyers who would come up with these great creative theories that would uh, take prosecution where no man had gone before uh, <laughs> and sort of, you know, criminalize stuff that Congress probably had no idea it was criminalizing when it enacted criminal statutes. Um, that's probably a bad thing anyway. But when it has implications for the for the election system and for our politics, it's a really bad idea because it looks like one, the incumbent government, which controls the the Justice Department, using it as a political weapon against its enemies. So I think the public will accept prosecutions in a political context if it's a very clear crime, which is what Barr meant by meat and potatoes. You know, if it's something that is so evil that people can wrap their brain around it. If Trump had said, uh, let's all go down to the Capitol and riot and break the doors down and, you know, everybody could see that that was something that was really wrong. Right. But if it's if it's ambiguous then it's like they're using their discretion and their judgment to go after their political enemies and they're creating crimes that everybody may not be convinced are crimes. And that's a bad thing to do in a political context. What about the idea that Trump was derelict in his duty as president of the United States to this? They're focusing so much now on those hours inside of the White House when the then president uh, just sat there and, and didn't 
do the things that maybe should could have minimized this damage or protected Congress, protected this process. So is that a meat and potatoes thing that you think Americans can get their head around and support? It's a meat and potatoes impeachment. Okay. It's not a meat and potatoes prosecution. What I find infuriating about this whole thing is 18 months ago when we were talking about impeachment, uh, people like me were saying you don't want to impeach on incitement to insurrection. As long as Trump – you're not removing Trump from office anyway because it happened so late in his term. And then for some reason, the Democrats decided to take a week off rather than starting impeachment proceedings the day after the riot, right? So as a practical matter, you were not going to be able to remove Trump. So you might as well do a competent investigation like they're doing now and then match up the behavior that you see, the derelictions of duty that you see, to the evidence that you have and write articles of impeachment that say dereliction of duty during the time, you know, during those three hours in the White House. Um, I think if they had done that, it would have been much harder for the Republicans in the Senate to vote to acquit him. And if you if you look at it, you know, the, the vote, even though it was not close to the two thirds that you need to oust the president, was decisively against Trump in the Senate. And I think if they had done a more competent investigation and had written articles of impeachment that matched the conduct, you would have had a better chance of impeachment. And if they had if they had convicted him in the Senate, we wouldn't be talking about this stuff now because. The whole idea of prosecution, nobody cares whether – well, maybe somebody does – about whether Trump goes to jail or not. What they're trying to do is end the possibility of him becoming president again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and effectively disqualify him, whereas if they had impeached him, they would have legally disqualified Disqual- him. Okay, uh, okay. For, you know, the, the, the sanction for impeachment is not just um, removal from office. In the Constitution, it's also disqualification from – holding office in the future. So if they had accomplished the impeachment and actually gotten him convicted in the Senate, then he'd be disqualified and we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't competently investigate it and they wrote a lousy impeachment article, which was designed not to impeach and remove and disqualify Trump, but it was designed as a political tool so that they could label Trump supporters insurrectionists. They thought it would serve their political talking points rather than doing their job, which was to do a competent impeachment. So here we are 18 months later, and they're doing the impeachment investigation they failed to do back then. And they're doing it under a guise, under the guise of like trying to develop a crime when, you know, I I guess the big difference people need to understand is impeachment is not the same as crime. The, The framers did not require proof of a crime to remove somebody from office. High crimes and misdemeanors is kind of a term of art that does not, it's not like felonies that I used to prosecute when I was a prosecutor. The way Hamilton described it was their offenses against that he called them political offenses in the sense that they were offenses against the political system. And you know, the difference between prosecution and impeachment is the difference between a right and a privilege. Holding public office is a privilege. It's not a right. So you don't have to have you don't have to prove everything that you have to prove in a criminal case. When we do a criminal case, it's to remove someone's liberty. 
So you have to do it in court and prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera. When you're removing a privilege like like holding office, it's not as high a burden of proof, and it's a political process, not a legal one. It doesn't have to be unanimous, you know. There's and the same rules don't apply as apply in the um, in the legal system. So, you know, impeachment's designed to be hard, but it's not impossible. And this is probably a case where it would have fit, but they didn't do a good job. They didn't do a good job. <laughs> we could apply that to so many things that are going on yes. in Congress right now. It's really quite sad. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about after this quick break is the Electoral College. There are some people who think it should be abolished and we should have a popular vote. And they right. kind of misread the Constitution if they think that's what we should be doing. But could the Electoral College be reformed in some way? We're going to talk to Andy McCarthy about that next. So I try to make the best food choices, but I got to admit it, I don't always succeed. And the CDC says I should eat six cups of fruits and vegetables every single day. There is zero chance that I'm going to get that done. Now, I know I should eat healthier, and I found a way to get those fruits and veggies in a really simple fashion, field of greens. I mix a little, you know, a little scoop with my favorite drink. And I am getting not just any old fruits and vegetables, the essential stuff. Because, you know, you could eat a bunch of fruit and vegetables, but are you really eating the right ones? Field of Greens, make sure you eat the right ones. And it's so, so easy. And right now I'm going to give you this great offer. If you go to Field of Greens and you use my promo code TAFOYA, fieldofgreens.com slash Tafoya, T-A-F-O-Y-A, or just the promo code Tafoya. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get 15% off your first order. And if you subscribe, which you should, you'll get 10% off when you subscribe for those recurring orders. It's Field of Greens. It's easy. It's healthy. My skin feels better. I feel like I have more energy. I'm not kidding. And I've tried other supplements like this. This is the first one that has really affected me. Fieldofgreens.com. Go get your 15% off your first order and 10% off recurring orders. When you use my code TAFOYA, T-A-F-O-Y-A. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Annie McCarthy, there is something out there right now called Electoral College, the Electoral College Reform Act. I know at one time you were hesitant to get behind this or thought there might be room for some mischief here. What the act is out there now, it's been written. What do you see? What do you like? What don't you like? Yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised by the proposal. 
And the reason I was a naysayer is not that I thought that the 1887 Electoral Count Act couldn't use some tweaking. It could. Um, but you always have to worry when you open one of these Pandora's boxes if what you end up with at the end is worse than what you now have. Yeah. And I think, you know, January 6th was terrible, but the Electoral Count Act worked reasonably well for about 130 years. So I think before we just trash it, um, you know, you have to be sure that what you're going to replace it with is better. And the reason I'm suspicious is because I'm, uh, well, I'm, I'm probably wired to be that way to begin with. But <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Well, maybe um, in this context, I think it is anyhow. The But, you know, there's a lot of people out there, Michelle, who want to like overthrow the constitutional system of electing presidents and in particular want to get rid of the Electoral College. In fact, Jamie Raskin, who led the uh, – 20, uh, the 2021 impeachment of Trump and who is on the January 6th committee is quite open about the fact that he would like to get rid of the Electoral College and have a national electoral vote. Uh, that's very popular on the left. And you can understand why. I mean, um, the cities in the United States tend to be the bluest parts of the United States. Right. Um, and a national popular vote would give them way more influence over the outcome of an election than they sure. have now. Yeah. The way the the Electoral College is designed so that a presidential candidate has to get a national consensus to win office. So you have to pay attention to what people think in, you know, flyover country. Right. Um, they're part of the country, too. And I don't think, you know, the country is very different, obviously, than it was in, in 1787. But I don't think that the framers would have thought it was a good idea to have, you know, L.A. and New York elect the president, even if they're not representative of, of how most of the country thinks. Right. So a national popular vote would look very different from what we have. Well, we, we've I, seen that. We love it when people say, oh, well, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She should be president. Well, no, she shouldn't because she didn't. When the the electoral college, which let's let's remind people if, if you can, because I know you can do it better than yep. I can, why the founders designed this electoral college and what it's designed to do, and that we're not a democracy, we're a democratic republic. If you can right. give us a quick primer on that, yeah, I, you know, look, the idea was the states were supposed to be the most important component of the government. We think of it as Congress nowadays, and actually, Congress thinks its job is to you know, delegate its duties and go on table, cable television and complain how bad everything is. But the way things were designed, the states were supposed to be the most important part of our republic. And the Electoral College gives the states um, importance in terms of what the, you know, influence in terms of who is going to be the president that leads the whole country, not, not just leads L.A. and New York and a couple right. of other cities, right? So the Electoral College forces the people who want to be the chief executive of the United States to draw support from a wide range of Americans across the country rather than in a few big population hubs. And we would have very different elections if we had a national popular election. And by the way, I love pointing this out. Hillary Clinton didn't win the popular vote either. You know, she got more than Trump did, but she didn't get over 50 percent. Okay. Um, so, you know, all these people like they love the popular vote, except when they don't. 
So, yeah, you know, like, right, for example, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton won with, was it 41, 42% his first time? You know, Trump had 46%. Um, that's the way we've had about five or six elections in the history of the United States where the person who won the popular vote did not win the electoral vote. But it's not unfair because that's the way the elect, you know, it's like if you were going to work, you know, you, at the end of a baseball game, my team got 11 hits and yours got five. But you got five runs and I got three. You know, we, we're not going to say I should win because we got more hits, right? Yes. That's, everybody knows the, the way the rules work. Right? Those aren't the rules and we have rules. And I, I, I always hearken back to this and I wonder if you saw it because it actually really nauseated me. When Wanda Sykes was recently on a late night show and said, you know, it's all these red stuff, the red people, you know, the people in the middle of the country, those of us in L.A. and New York, we're the ones paying the bills. You should know your position as though no one else matters but the coasts. And that's that's not what the founders recognized. Again, as you said, it's the states. So this Electoral College accounts for that. So so now. What what happened is that Trump thought Pence could could raise his hand and make stuff go away. Again, right. take us through what Trump thought Pence can do could do, which he couldn't do in the first place. Yes, Trump thought that um, the, the person who should decide the twenty twenty four election was Kamala Harris. Basically, I mean, how does that yeah. sound to everyone? Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of there's ambiguity in some of the language of. The, both the 1887 electoral uh, electoral count act and the 12th amendment is not exactly a model of clarity and you'd take someone who's a smart constitutional lawyer like John Eastman and he can work the uh, work the ambiguities which is what uh, we lawyer types are um, are trained to do mm-hmm. so they got it in their heads you know it's, it's one of these things you, have you ever seen like one of these things where it's like a a segmented argument and someone gives you the first part and you say, oh, that makes sense. And then you get the second part. And you say, yeah, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And the third part. And then by the end, you're saying, and therefore, the vice president gets to pick the president. <laughs> and you say, no, no, wait a minute. Where did this <laughs> go wrong? Um, yeah. So, you know, everybody understands that the vice president can't pick the president. I, I, I look at the um, – I, I sometimes wonder whether we even need to have – a joint session of Congress where the president gets acknowledged because what the framers decided and wanted was the states to run the presidential elections. So the only thing that matters is the states conduct their elections and then the electoral college meets, which it actually does on December 14th, not, or it was this year, December 14th or this last time, not January 6th. I think of the January 6th, the joint session of Congress is like, it's ceremonial. It's almost like a it's like a marriage in the sense that like people are there to bear witness to something that is not really something they have any control over, but is a solemn event. Gotcha. Uh, and what it's where the federal government acknowledges who has won the majority of the state certified electoral votes. I even resist Michelle when people say. Congress was there on January 6th to certify Biden's victory. The state certified Biden's victory. Congress was there to watch. That's they're, a really they're important there on, point. That's a really important point. They're, they're only there to, to count the votes officially. Right. Um, and say Biden won. 
So it's not really a certification. The certification that matters happens at the state level. But they got it in their head that this January 6th thing is not only uh, like a solemn event, it's the event, T-H-E event in our elections. And I think pr- that's probably because it was the last gasp to to try to do anything. Right. And they got it in their heads that um, because there's a procedure for objecting to electoral votes – that Pence's role was more important than it is. And the only reason we have a procedure for objecting to electoral votes is we've had some occasions in history, the uh, the 1876 election, which the electoral count grew out of, was was the most scandalous of all. But, you know, we've had a couple of times in history, like in 1960, Hawaii first certified its votes for Nixon – and then they realized on a recount that it was that Kennedy had won, okay. uh, and they sent two slates of electors. And the, and and uh, you know, in a in a somewhat dramatic way, Vice President Nixon had to rule against himself and award Hawaii's votes to to Kennedy. You know, so we've had these quirky things come up in history, but most of federal law, if if we if we actually followed it, which they didn't get too persnickety about the last time around, is designed to make sure this doesn't happen. So there's a deadline this year. The last time around, it was December 8th, by which um, federal all state disputes over the election are supposed to be over. And if they have certified their votes by December 8th, as a matter of federal law, that's it. No more. No one can object anymore. And on December 14th, the Electoral College meets. So we know who the next president is going to be on December 14th based on the state's. Not right. anything Congress has to do, and then the only thing that's supposed to happen is on January on on January sixth is Congress meets to acknowledge what the states have done, and the vice president presides. But people should understand he doesn't preside as a as an executive; he presides in his constitutional role as the president of the Senate. Okay. Um, actually, you know, probably the most outrageous thing that Trump did on January sixth was say that he was going to march to the Capitol with the rioters, not because that would have been really dangerous, but because constitutionally it was utterly inappropriate. Mm. The president's got no business being on Congress's turf when they're doing a constitutionally required congressional act. And the fact that Pence was there doesn't mean there's an executive role in it. It means that Pence is there in his capacity as president of the Senate. Which is why, you know, the vice president is separately elected in the Constitution and all that good stuff. So this thing on January 6th is just ceremonial. It's not supposed to be anything else. So if they want to do this new legislation, and the point of it is to make crystal clear what I think everybody seemed to know for 130 years, which is that the vice president is there uh, basically to be a highfalutin witness to the counting of the state votes, then fine. Um, and if they want to make it more difficult for people to raise frivolous objections to the state certification, I think that's good too. I mean, we've had too much of in the last number of elections of people in Congress frivolously objecting to the electoral votes, including, by the way, the chairman of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, who objected to electoral votes for Bush in 2004, 2005, and Jamie Raskin, who objected to Trump's Florida votes in in 2016, 17. So the idea that like 
you know, this never happened before, that this is the first time that, that you know, people got wild and crazy with this stuff is just yeah. not so. Well, I was heartened to to see that what they've proposed in this in this bill is something you can get behind because I think that your judgment on this is is extremely solid. So that's that's good news. I'll ta- tackle one last topic with you, and it's not really one; it's kind of a broad umbrella. Before I let you go, we'll do this after the break. Just a, a kind of a recap of the Supreme Court session and. How everybody's brains exploded when they probably should have just kept their heads together. That's coming up next. You know, since November of a year ago, the stock market has plummeted. But you know what's been on the rise? Gold. Gold has been on the rise. Gas prices, meanwhile, are insane. The stock market is all over the map. Inflation is its It's worst in 40 years, and now we have this war with Russia and Ukraine that is gumming up a lot of stuff, and the markets don't like all this instability. But the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection because gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. Here's where Legacy Precious Metals comes in. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust for investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and your retirement. So get some questions answered and call Legacy Precious Metals today. You want to be proactive about this. Remember 2008? Those who invested in gold in 2008 saw huge gains. Others simply lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all of your options for investing in gold and silver, and you can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. This Supreme Court session will probably be best remembered for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Andy, and, you know, the the screaming and yelling that abortion has been banned was erroneous at best. And, you know, power to the people is exactly what happened here in... So let's just go back to Roe real quick. And even Ruth Bader Ginsburg knew that the legal underpinnings of Roe were not solid. And she she thought that why? Well, because Roe, you know, the, the John Hardy Ely, who was a great constitutional scholar, left of center orientation, but a great constitutional scholar, uh, at the time that Roe came out, said the problem with Roe is not that it's bad constitutional law, it's that it's not constitutional law at all, and it doesn't seem to feel any obligation to even try to be or to appear to be. So they just made it up. I mean, you know, they tried to say, well, you know, maybe it's maybe it's in the First Amendment. Maybe it's the Fifth. Maybe it's the 14th. You know, one of those amendments and they all have penumbras and they have emanations from the penumbras and it's in there someplace. And of course, it's not in there any place. But the, the terrible thing about it, Michelle, is in this constitutional system, the court is only supposed to intervene when a fundamental constitutional right is at stake. And, you know, we can argue about whether those rights are just the ones that are written in the Constitution or whether there are unenumerated rights and what a right has, you know, what kind of standing it has to have to be, you know, to have constitutional status and all that. But the thing is, 
in terms of like just bottom line legitimacy, the way this is supposed to work is we're a self-determining republic and the amount of space for the defense of minority rights that the courts are supposed to to have to intrude into democracy is supposed to be small. Right. And for the rest of it, we're supposed to decide for ourselves through our elected uh, representatives. And you mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, she was very pro-abortion, but her beef with Roe versus Wade, when she was a scholar, by the way, when she got on the Supreme Court, she reliably voted for Roe every time. But when she was a scholar, what she said was that by interrupting the democratic process as they did in, in 1973 with Roe, what the court did was take away what was at the time a, a, a democratic process in which the states were looking at their abortion laws. And I think back then about 30 of them still outlawed ab- abortion, abortion, 20 of them, I think, um, you know, permitted it with some regulations and you know things were evolving so if you would just let that process play out we would have had different abortion regimes in different places but nobody would have felt like you know their rights were violated or that you know it, it all would have been decided in the process that we use to decide everything and even if you didn't like the law like i don't like a lot of laws but i can't i i don't have a beef with the way they get enacted you know because we argue and sometimes we win sometimes we lose and you know that's how that's how we go on the court interrupted that and usurped the issue to itself and i think what the left has been able to do for half a century was make people think that the word row was synonymous with legal abortion when in fact the word row was synonymous with abortion on demand anytime for any reason up until the moment of birth which most people don't agree with right right um but they were led to believe that if you removed row that that would be the end of legal abortion and it's not what it all it did was get the court out of something it shouldn't have been in, in the first place and allowed democracy to work again right. which it never it, that never should have stopped Right. And, and, and people argued it, it just it kind of kills me because I don't think people really think very hard right. about things before they start spewing. There was also the, the gun case in New York that the Supreme Court dealt with. And what they were saying is, look, the Second Amendment allows legal gun ownership. And this law in New York was getting in the way of the Constitution. So that's a totally a totally different approach how did how did you see that one well you know unlike abortion the second amendment actually is in the constitution that's not like a penumbra or an emanation it's an actual bunch of english words strung together you know um so you know justice scalia i think really basically resolved this in heller in, in 2008 and this was just a faithful rendering of heller you know the right is to keep and bear arms it's not to keep arms So, you know, if you can keep them, you can bear them. That's what the Second Amendment says. And what Scalia said uh, correctly in Heller was that the original understanding of the Second Amendment is that people were expected, um, but certainly permitted to have weapons that were in common use. Uh, Now, part of that seems antiquated because one of the original ideas of the Second Amendment, which was much more at the front of the minds of people in the end of the 18th century than it is today, is that 
a tyrannical government could take over and the people needed to be armed because the first thing a tyrant does is disarm the citizenry and have a monopoly on the use of force by a, by a standing army. So one of the things the Second Amendment was designed to do was to allow make sure that the public remained armed in case the government became tyrannical because we think mm-hmm. that's crazy now but in the 17 in the 18th century that wasn't such a crazy idea since they right. had a king right before we before we had yeah. um, our government so yeah. um you know one of the big arguments against the second amendment is that that's a that's an anachronistic idea at this point because people with common weaponry could not be a could not match the military of a superpower at this point. Right. But what Justice right. Scalia said, and he, again, totally right about this, is the Second Amendment says what it says. Now, we could do a lot of things. We could amend the Second Amendment to completely repeal it and give the government a monopoly on the use of force. Or we could change the Second Amendment to say that you're now allowed to have missiles, not just weapons that are in common use, but like, like whatever the government has, you can have too. You want you yeah. know, bombs, yeah. whatever. Um, but what Scalia's point is, to do that, you would have to amend the Second Amendment. You could do it one way, you could do it the other way. But in the meantime, it says what it says. And what it says is that people have the right to keep and bear arms. And that was not just to, to as a check on the government, but it was it was a outgrowth an outgrowth of your natural right of self-defense that pre-existed the Constitution. So what people don't understand, I think, commonly about the Second Amendment is it's not – it doesn't give you a right. What the Second Amendment says is you already have a right that pre-existed the Constitution, which is the natural right of self-defense to keep and bear arms. And the Second Amendment is not a right for the people. It's a check on government. That says you don't get to take the people's weapons away. So yeah. it's you know th- this idea that the government and the Constitution gives us the right to to defend ourselves is not true. The Constitution honors the fact that we have a pre-existing natural right to defend ourselves, and that government can infringe it. That's what the whole idea is. Extremely well said. I learn so much when I listen to you, and I truly enjoy that. And I just wish, you know, I think one of my big frustrations these days, Andy, is that people either don't want to learn, they want the easy route to information. And so, and, and we're not teaching in our academic institutions really what the Constitution is, does, why it exists, how it exists. And this is very scary to me because to see people actually come out and say that the constitution is kind of an archaic document we don't need it we should have something different it should be blown up is is to overlook the the amazing document that it is with the foresight that it was built with with which it was built yeah. I'm trying to check my grammar here andy yeah but uh, well, so right. <laughs> so i appreciate your explanations of these things and what a what an enlightening conversation i hope we can have you back because there's just so much to talk about and your explanations are so detailed and so so understandable so thank you very very much for your time today well michelle thanks so much for having me i really enjoyed it he's andy mccarthy i'm michelle tafoya this has been sideline sanity be brave and do good And read the Constitution.
Well, we always appreciate it when Charles Thorngren can join the join the podcast and talk a little money and gold in particular with us. Gold and silver. And Charles, it's these are mad times. I mean, it's just really wacky. And anyone who's watching the stock market is probably asking themselves, what do I do? I don't I don't know, you know, I'm not I don't know how to ride this roller coaster with everyone. And so obviously you recommend investing in precious metals. What's the first step that someone should take in learning about what precious metals can do for them? You know, the, the first step, um, give us a call, right? We're, we're going to show you what options there are available. Um, that's what Legacy is about, is showing you options and, and educating everyone. The important thing to know is that we don't invest in gold and silver because it's pretty or because it's it's unique. Those things are true, but we do it because it has the history of being the true diversity for someone's portfolio. It's the insurance policy against everyone's retirement and their uh, their savings. So, so this is why we look at, at gold and silver specifically. It's the currency that was always meant to be, right? It's not a fiat currency. There's no um, inflationary effect on it. Gold and silver are going to be worth what they're worth. The thing that changes with everything is the amount of dollars it takes to buy that gold and silver and the amount of dollars you get for owning that gold and silver. That's the big key. And this is what people don't understand about it typically is that it is not the stock market and it is not the dollar. It's an investment that is counter to both of those. So it gives you true diversity and balance is what everyone's looking for right now. They just don't know it as inflation gets higher. This is where gold and silver come in. Someone is saying, okay, I want to do this, but I want to choose one or the other. When they call you and ask you these questions, when would you recommend gold and when would you recommend silver? You know, that's a great question. And what a lot of people wind up doing is actually doing a little of both because that's possible, right? But it's going to depend on your specific investment parameters. And that's one of the things we're going to do that we're, we're different from your typical stockbroker because we're not going to say, this is what all my customers are doing because that's not what's important. What's important is what matters to you and your portfolio. When is your retirement coming up? What are you looking to accomplish, right? What are your risks? What are, what, are your, what are your safety features that you need? So there's a lot that goes into it. And what we do here is talk with you, right? Our, our big thing is to educate you so that you understand why you're doing it as well as in what form and fashion. Because that's important. It is important. And I think, too, that people probably think uh, I'm a small investor. This is not for me. I can't I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to do this at a level that will benefit me to them. You would say what? Um, I don't think you can afford not to. If you have money saved and you're not flush with cash, it's more important than ever for you to make sure that you put yourself in a protective situation. Right. You have less to lose. So you should not lose it. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about how much protection you need. And if you don't have a, a very large portfolio, then you probably need it more than the guy who does because you can't afford that loss. And look at what the market's done over the course of the year. We are talking about a situation where the loss is extravagant and it's not done yet. This is why we look at 
uh, precious metals to counter that. And lastly, Charles, for those who fear that a recession may already be here or is coming, what do you tell them about how in a recession this investment helps out? Great question. A couple answers there. We are in a recession. Um, but the reality is it's not going to get bad for a few more months. Then it's really going to be bad. What we see happen next year is going to be devastating. Just think 2007, 2008, right? The troubles with 2008 happened in 2007. It just took time for it to hit the market in a real sense. And this is what we see. You know, we have inflationary numbers that rival the 80s, Um that's something that's going to be dramatic. So when we look at this, we say, why do we want to do it? And that's exactly why it helps because it's not the dollar and it's not the stock market, right? This is the safe haven investment. And if you look at long-term wisdom, that's what metals do. They give you a place to store your wealth without the effects of inflation, right? Inflation is good for your metals. The stock market correcting is good for your metals. Uh, a weak economy is better for your metals. So that's what it's meant to do. And that's why it has its place in the economy. We're talking about a worst case scenario right now. But even under the best of terms, the government tells you 2 to 3% inflation is a good thing. And at 2 to 3%, it doesn't sound bad, right? But over the course of your retirement and your lifetime investing, if you go 40 years, you've lost over 120% of value of your dollar by not having metals. So even in the best of times, there should be some in your portfolio. And during the worst, you really want to make sure you get a hold of somebody who can explain why and show you what options you have. Yeah, that's why we love to recommend Legacy Precious Metals on our show, Sideline Sanity. So the website is LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You can also go to the website and find the phone number to call, learn a whole lot more. It's just worth asking some questions, right? A quick phone call and getting more information about everyone's specific situation. Absolutely. We're a no-pressure organization. Everyone who contacts us, they reach out to us. We share information. If it's right for you, great. If it's not, that's great too. Learning something never hurt anybody. No, that is true. And we're glad we had you on to learn something from you today, Charles Thorngren. Again, it's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Please go check them out. Just ask some questions. Learn a little something. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.